ahead and get started tonight. Welcome back to our evening service. I'm going to be back over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. <clears throat> um, Ecclesiastes 7, as I've stated, has got uh, a lot of doctrinal principles uh, as we go through it. Um, we start seeing um, a lot of the the questions uh, being answered, um, the things, uh, you know, even in the first 10 verses, we find about six things that God said is better than um, some other things. And uh, we'll explain a little bit more about that in just a minute, but um, and we'll kind of uh, go back and talk about verse 3 and focus a bit on that uh, more this evening. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get going tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we again thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you again for the time that we have. And Lord, we pray that uh, this evening, that as we study uh, Ecclesiastes, that you would continue to reveal the truths that are here to us. And, uh, Lord, that we would see in our life uh, what things are better and uh, what things we should be looking for, what it is that we should be doing to please you and to honor you. And again, Lord, I just thank you for all that you've done for us this day already. I thank you for the good morning that we had and the good afternoon. And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, continue to bless us, keep us safe as we're here. And uh, again, Lord, um, just uh, speak to our hearts. And these things I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, here we are in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, again, for the context, we'll read through verse 10. Verse 1 says, Good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For it is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for... By the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Uh, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise for, or than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Uh, surely oppression maketh a wise uh, man uh, mad and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the fool of bosoms. Say not what is the cause that the former days were better than these, for thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Uh, this. We'll see some things about that. Uh, probably not going to get that far tonight, but again, to just kind of broach some of the subject because we're talking about the context of this passage. And uh, specifically in here, we find uh, uh, seven things that God talks about is uh, specifically uh, better. And what we find is that God wants us to go for those better things. Uh, if you go over to the book of uh, uh, Hebrews, you find very clearly that he talks about Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is better than the law. Why? Because the law couldn't save us. Jesus Christ can. Uh, you find that he's obviously a better high priest uh, because he's not corrupted as men in this uh, uh, flesh are. Uh, we find there's a lot of things that are about him that are better than what we can get from this physical world and what what is out there. So as we find these things, again, it's kind of the answer to the, the question that was posed in verse 12 of chapter 6 about who knows what is good. Well, God does. God knows what is good because he knows what's better. And this is where we're getting to this. We're, we're answering that question, if you will. 
We were talking about the name in, um, uh, obviously, the House of Mourning, and I just want to make mention of this because we'll talk about it in verse 4 in just a minute. <clears throat> a lot of people don't have an idea of what they think about mourning is. Uh, they think mourning is only attributed to the loss uh, of, of, you know, somebody that's close to them, uh, a friend, a relative, spouse, whatever it may be. There's a mourning process that we talk about, and that that is true, but that's not the full intent of what mourning is about, and specifically here. You know, mourning is understanding um, things of, of uh, that uh, cause sorrow, uh, understanding why that sorrow is there, understanding why that grief is there, and how it works specifically with repentance. Um, you go back and you take a look at some of the, the, the much, much, much older definitions of the word mourning, specifically even when you go back to the early English language and how it came to being, it, it talked a lot about regret. It talked a lot about, um, if you will, the realization of, uh, of where uh, an error is made. So when we think about this in the house of mourning, um, and obviously it uh, uh, being uh, better than the house of, uh, of feasting, we see that, you know, if a person ignores the rebuke of God, if a person ignores the repentance that is necessary, and this is exactly what this passage is talking about, then there's a problem then we're we're not affiliating with the name of God. We're not affiliating with the name of Christ. What we're doing is we're affiliating with ourselves. And we we, we kind of get that idea and that concept. You go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and in verse 4, it says there is a time to mourn. And in context, you know, it also talks about there's a time to dance over there. So it makes it very clear that there are time to do certain things. And there are times to, to, to very specifically mourn. There are times, uh, to express happiness and so on and so forth. And, and God's not saying, uh, here that it is better that you walk around with a distressed face as the Pharisees were, uh, you know, just lamenting your life. Now again, we don't walk around with that, uh, that false positivity. You know, it, it, there's the, those individuals that are out there was, well, if I just think positive thoughts, good things are going to happen to me. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, you can have all the positive thoughts in the world you want, but it's not going to do away with sin. It's not going to do away with the bad stuff that happens in life. It's not going to uh, magically turn your life into, you know, uh, lollipops and rainbows and things of that nature. It's just not going to do that. What it's going to do is it's going to frustrate you. Why? Because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Like we were talking about this morning, instead of focusing on spiritual, you're focusing on a physical. And this is uh, where some of these issues arise. But as we see what's going on here, and specifically in verse 3, and that's kind of where we left off last week, where he talks about where sorrow is better than laughter. So again, when we talk about things being better, he's talking about it in context, uh, what we have here. You know, it's better to mourn and better to understand what you have done and the to receive that rebuke and that instruction, as we see later on here, um, than to go about and laugh it off, to scorn, if you will, to turn around and say, as the fool laughs and says, who cares? That's not what we do. This is why he's saying these things are better. 
Now, again, we understand, you know, it talks about that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine over there in the book of Proverbs. But what we find here is we find that in the situation, in the context that, that he's talking about, he's talking about some things of rebuke. He's talking about specifically here, as we see this, this, uh, this sorrow is better than laughter. In verse 3, it says, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. So when we take a look at this and we begin to realize how he's talking here, it's just like the book of Proverbs. You know, again, you go over to the book of Proverbs in the very first chapter, he talks about the Proverbs and understanding their dark sayings, what it is. Now, he doesn't say dark as in, you know, they're evil or anything of that nature, but what he's saying is you got to take light, you got to take the word of God, you got to be, you know, scripturally oriented. You have to go in there and you have to go in and discern in a spiritual manner with the light of Christ to discern what he's talking about in the book of Proverbs. And people look at it and say, well, it's a book of common sense. Yes, and at the same time, a resounding no, because it's not just physical. It has, it has, a, it has a tremendous amount of phys, uh, spiritual application. You can't just take the physical principles of the book of Proverbs, apply it to your life, and make your life happy and joyous. It's not the way it works. All those things that we see over there that are good are, are, are God-oriented. They're, they're according to his process. They're according to his standards. They're according to his plan, not according to ours. So when we, <coughs> pardon me. So when we get through this, this verse and we get to here to this point where he's talking about sorrow is better than laughter, we begin to realize that he's talking about again this context of what we see. You know, you know, again, we know that laughter is good. I want you to turn to a couple of passages. Turn to the book of Proverbs. You know, we'll see these verses specifically. Uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 17. Let's start there. Proverbs 17, and then we'll go over to Proverbs 15. But Proverbs 17, and take a look here at what he says in verse uh, 22. It says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Now, a lot of people quote that verse, right? A lot of people will sit there and they will, they will take that phrase and they will run with it. And, and they kind of go for that intent of being happy all the time. Now obviously, merriment according to godly standards, not worldly standards, but godliness is a good thing. I mean, it's good to rejoice. It's good to see those things. You should get excited like the angels do when somebody trusts Christ as their savior. You should get excited when the Lord speaks to you and when you're reading and he instructs you and he guides you and you find something from scripture that, that directs your path. You should be excited when somebody in church comes and says, you know, I, I, I'm growing for the Lord and they, they want to share something from scripture that they learned with you. Those are great things that you want to have happen in your life. And I will tell you this, it, it does, it does good like a medicine. You can be down in the dumps, and this is this has often happened. You can have one of the worst weeks that you've ever had. You can come to church, and you can be walking around with your little storm cloud over you, and you, and, and you're just kind of, you know, trudging through. And you know, people come up to you and say hi and how are you doing, and you're just like, you know, and you grumble and moan. And then somebody comes up to you, and they just look at you and they say, "Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to see you." And they give you a hug, and maybe they give you a bro hug, maybe they give you a full hug, and you're just like freaking out because you're an introvert, you never want to be touched. 
<laughs> but the end result is, is you're like, yeah. My, my daughter was talking about this the other day. She had one of those days and it happens at college. You know, especially if you're in any of the graphic design, uh, um, classes, you begin to learn that resources are limited for graphic design students. Uh, you have to fight over printers. Um, you have to, you know, wait your turn. You have to do this and you have to sit there and print and try to print. And then you got other people waiting for you and they're sitting there tapping their foot and, you know, drumming their fingers and they're waiting and they're looking at their watch because they got to get their stuff done. But you got to print your stuff. So the pressure's on and then it prints wrong. And then you're like, ah, all these things and so on and so forth. So she had had a bad day. She had, had you know, some things that were going wrong in, in various different classes and uh, just, just kind of, you know, getting to a point of where, you know, she was a little tired and just, you know, some frustration comes up and it happens, right? And we're emotional beings. And, 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 and somebody just came up and gave her a hug, a girl. Okay. All right. You know, in, 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 in a, you know, in a friendly manner. All right. Not, not that one. All right. But came up and just gave her a hug. And then and everybody, you know, and then the next person sees her getting a hug and they're like, Oh, Abby needs a hug. And then she comes and gives a hug. And then Abby says, yeah, I'm just operating off hug energy now. And then everybody's like, oh, and they all come and they try to hug her. And, you know, they're trying to encourage her and it uplifts her in the day. You know, that's a good thing. That's a merry heart that do with good like a medicine. It helps correct some of those bad days. I tell you, when you sit there and you think think about all the bad things in life and watch CNN, you'll go crazy. You just will. And look, I don't care whether it's CNN or Fox. They're all, you know, all of it. You look at it and you, you, by the time you're done, you'll walk away and you think that the world's already in hell. <laughs> it, it just seems like that. it's that bad. But take a look at the second part of this verse. Most people can quote the first part. What about the second? Verse 22, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. A broken spirit. Now, what is it that God responds to? Brokenness. Contriteness. That's what he loves, according to Psalm chapter 51. That's, that's, that's where he does the work. Because when you're broken, he's the one that comes in and fixes it. When you're contrite, he's the one that comes in and comforts. So we see here that there is this uh, this part where the broken spirit drives the bones. We can see that it has an effect in our life, down down into the deepest part of us, into the deepest part of us. You know, we can get a temporary uh, thing, and medicine sometimes is a temporary fix for something. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> If you've ever had to live with, with, with chronic, you know, back problems or anything of that nature or a chronic health condition, you take a little bit of medicine to just keep the edge off, right? So you don't lose your mind. <laughs> and every now and then you take a Tylenol or something like that or you, you, you try to do something to, to, to help alleviate it or whatever it may be. You crack your neck and do these things and you're trying to, trying to find a way to, to, to relieve some of the pain. But it was only like, it seems like a temporary fix sometimes. Especially if it's a chronic issue that you're always going to have and have to deal with. If it's something that's acute, meaning that it only happens for a short period of time and then it passes away, such as a, uh, such as the flu, you're not going to have a you know a flu stay with you the whole time. You're not going to have a cold stay with you the whole time. 
those things come and they go. You know, they, they build up the virus and then they, they die off. Your immune system finally wins. But what we find is, is that, that medicine is a temporary thing. But what we see with the brokenness of the spirit, there's something that is dried and, and it needs refreshment. It needs more than just a medicine. It needs life again. Yeah, you know, I, I think about this verse. I think about over there in Ezekiel, the valley of the dry bones. And he goes over there and he starts seeing all of these bones that are dried around, laying around in this, uh, in this, uh, valley. And, and here comes the Lord and he starts doing something and they start growing sinew and they start growing muscle and flesh. And then, you know, God breathes into them life and all of these things. But it's God is the one that's doing the, if you will, the resurrection of it. It's God that's the one that's doing the work in there. And this is where we need to be at this point. And this is kind of what Solomon is also talking about. <coughs> Go over to Proverbs 15. Proverbs chapter 15. <clears throat> now here, here it is in verse 13, a, 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 a partner verse to what we just read, and a partner verse to what we uh, are reading here in Ecclesiastes. It says, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. If you're, if you are excited about something and you're happy, guess what's going to happen? It's, you're going to smile. You just are. You're just going to be, you know, unless you've got one of those permanent frowns, then we have something else to talk about. But, you know, you're just, you're just happy. You smile. You know, something, something, somebody does something, somebody encourages you, you smile. You changes your countenance. From the, the humdrum to, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm excited about it. But what we see here in verse 13, it says, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. So that spirit that was broken in the previous chapter, or, or over here in chapter 17, we find out why it was broken. Because of sorrow. Sorrow has the purpose and the intent of making a change in your life. Don't run from sorrow. Receive it and approach it spiritually. That's what we do with sorrow. When we don't do that is when we go into, uh, you know, what people often refer to as clinical depression or, you know, the suicidal thoughts. That, that's what can happen if we let sorrow reign. We never let our emotions reign. We always put our emotions in check according to the word of God. If we have sorrow and it comes in our life, then that tells us at that point in time, this is a, if you will, a, a check engine light on your dash of your life that says you need to get closer to God. Well, I thought I already was close to God. You are close to God. You need to get closer. God has something for you. And there's comfort that comes with that. So we, we begin to receive that instruction. But what we find, if we go back over there to Ecclesiastes 7 in, in uh, verse 3, it says sorrow is better than laughter. Now, everybody wants to have laughs, and they think that laughter is the better, the better medicine. They think that, that, that laughter is, is how you deal with things. You can never laugh your sins away. You can't. You can't laugh your sins away. First John chapter one, verse nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that means? 
It means you come to him and you ask for forgiveness, you repent, you confess. There's sorrow with that. Why? Because sorrow and repentance go hand in hand. They go hand in hand, especially when it comes to things that are sinful. We have to understand that concept. We have to begin to understand why this is. And and, and what we see here, as he talks about this in verse 3, he says, For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. You know, here we are, and we're grieved, and we, you know, to the point of where we actually feel it in our face, and there's a physical, we can actually get to the point of where we are feeling better later. Let me explain this. Let me explain this. I want us to take a look at a couple of passages. Go over to Nehemiah. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's start there. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, in verse, uh, uh, in the previous chapter, Nehemiah just uh, found out that his uh, homeland is just a disaster. It's ruins. It's waste. And uh, he prays about it. You find Nehemiah is a very prayerful man. And in verse uh, 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the month Nisan, uh, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not be, uh, been before time sad in his presence. Why? Well, you know, if you're sad in the presence of the king, um, he might actually question when you give him the cup that, you just poured things into. <laughs> he might be a little curious about, uh, is there something in the cup I need to be concerned about? You know, what's going on? What, you know, all these things. And it says in verse two, it says, wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Artaxerxes was very perceptive. He was very perceptive. You know, when you're sick, you generally, sometimes you look like you're sick. You just, you know, somebody walks into you and they're like, hey, how you, oh, you okay? <laughs> you know, they look at you that way. But when somebody looks at you and they can just see the sadness in your face, as much as you're trying to do away with it, and they say, this is not, you're not sick. Your heart's broken. Your heart is broken. And this is what our Xerxes is seeing here. And he says, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And it's a serious thing. He had a serious job. And he just pointed out saying, you're sad, but it's not because you're sick. There's something eating at you. What is it? And it said, and he, uh, in verse three, it says, and said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? And he begins to have a real conversation with the king. And obviously, we, 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 if you read the book of Nehemiah, we find that Artaxerxes turns over, uh, a, you know, authority to him to say, go rebuild it. Go rebuild the wall. Go rebuild the gates. Get it back to where it was. That's an amazing thing that God would take a Gentile king like this uh, from the media Persians and 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 give them, you know, a heart to to do these things. And it's amazing to see that. And what we find here that it was a sorrow of heart, 
And that sorrow of heart had an outward expression. Now, we find that over in several passages in Psalm chapter 32, Psalm 37, I think 38, 51. There's a bunch of them where you find the psalmists are saying they were so sad and they were so distressed and sometimes over sin that they actually had physical symptoms of it. Physical symptoms that existed. Take a look over at uh, (coughs) Esther. The book of Esther, Esther chapter 9, next uh, book over. Esther chapter 9. I want you to see, uh, again, another situation where there's an an effect that takes place. Now, obviously, we know that, um, you know, Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah some, some great responsibility and he had a, a, a tough go of it because he had enemies within and enemies without. And, and uh, you know, in the end, he even still had to go in and uh, do some house cle- housekeeping and cleaning house and grabbed a hold of one guy that was living in the temple, grabbed a hold of him by the hair and drug him out. I mean, so, yeah, go read the Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you kind of see the level of frustration. He He's not restraining himself. <laughs> He's he's just like I'm done with this. I'm done with the the, the 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 debauchery. I'm done with everything that you guys are doing against God. And he starts throwing this guy's stuff into the you know the yard, you know, out in front of the. And then he grabs a hold of a guy and drags him out, and so on and so forth. But but what we find here in the book of Esther, and again, if you remember the book of Esther, Esther is unique. Esther never mentions the name of God, but clearly shows the providence of God. The providence of God in the life of the nation of Israel, even when they are in bondage. And we find here, you know, Esther becomes queen and uh, she saves uh, her people through, um, you know, obviously going and exposing a conspiracy uh, that occurs. Um, there's an individual, a bad guy by the name of Haman, and he is hung on his own noose that he had intended for Mordecai, who was related to Esther. But what we find here is, as all of this happens, at the end here, we find this um, this uh, uh, holiday put in place called Purim. In verse 22, and it says in chapter 9 of Esther, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, it says, As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make themselves days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. <coughs> I like this verse because it clearly shows the progression of what should happen in your life. There should be a realization that when we go through and we're rebuked and we see there's things that we need to be corrected in, things that we need to change, we have sorrow of heart, we turn uh, away from them and we turn to the Lord in repentance, and then we begin to do that which is right, we see that then comes the joy. You know what a lot of people want to do? They want to skip the whole section in between. They want to go from, oh, this is a bad day, I want a good day. But they don't want to do the process in between to get there. Well, that's cutting corners. Is the result going to be the same? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You cut corners in your job, you know, certain jobs, that's, we're talking life or death. We're talking life or death. 
scary stuff. I mean, you know, here you are, let's say you've got a job where you're driving a truck and then all of a sudden, you, you know, you take your, your car in for service and the mechanic says, hey, you know what, um, we found a bra- problem with your brake line, but we went ahead and we, we fixed it. And you're like, you fixed it? Yeah, we got it all fixed. And they, instead of using the proper tubing for the brake line and the proper type of it, they decided to try to use straws. <laughs> That's not going to work. I don't care how, how how durable that straw is, it's not going to work. It's not going to be able to take the pressure. And then next thing you know is when you've got a, a heavy load, you apply the brakes, your brakes don't work. You're putting your life and the life of people in the highway at risk. But that's what happens when people cut corners. And people often want to put the cart before the horse. They want the joy first, and then they will address the repentance. They, they, they want the feel good and then they will go through and they say, well, okay, well, once, once I get that joy and once I get that comfort, then I'll turn from my sins. And that's not how God wants it. That comes after words. So this is where sorrow is better. If you put laughter before sorrow, you're not going to have a better situation. You're actually going to make it worse. You're going to make it worse than what it is. Turn over the book of Psalms. Let's go to Psalms. <clears throat> Let's take a look at a couple of passages. Psalm chapter 38. I kind of referenced this one. Psalm chapter 38. Psalm 38 has got a lot of these, uh, um, references, but, but I want to give the context of what we're talking about here. And we find that in verse one. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. So, obviously, at this point in time, this psalmist needs to be rebuked and chastened. And he understands that. And he's he's like, he wants to make sure that it's done, you know, uh, in, in a way where God's not going to destroy him. And when we go through this, and we realize all of these things that he's talking about here, I want you to, to go down a little bit further to this um, into verse 17. Here he is, he says, For I am ready to halt, and my sorrow is continually before me. And we find exactly why in verse 18, for I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. That sorrow that he's seeing in verse 17 is because his sins are ever before him. And now, now, now there's sorrow involved. Now he's truly sorry about what's happening because he knows he has to be chastened. He knows he has to be rebuked. And again, he, 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 he's wanting to do this in a way that he's preserved. And you realize and you think about this for a second that when, when King David did what he did, he should have died. multiple of the occasions where David messed up, he should have died. You realize that Paul, according to the law, should have died for killing those Christians, falsely imprisoning them? I mean, we start thinking about that for a second, we realize how God is very merciful. We should be very thankful because, again, our sins the same way. 
Now, whether we die in this life or it's in the second life, you know, the second death that he talks about, where our name isn't found in the Lamb's Book of Life, you know, those are both serious. But the second one is more serious because now you're talking about eternal torment and punishment. So we want to make sure that what we're doing is this sorrow is producing the right kind of results. We want to make sure that it is producing exactly what it needs to produce. If we just live a life where we're just, you know, uh, if you will, not sober about sin, not realizing the importance behind it, the importance behind why we need to obey and what happens when we disobey and the rebuke that needs to come, and we just laugh it off and say, well, I'm just, you know, here to have fun. That's not the better life. God says that's the worst. That's worse. Now, obviously, laughter has its place, as we talked about. Take a look at Psalm chapter 39. Psalm chapter 39, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> and, and he says here in verse uh, verse 1, again, here we've got uh, uh, the context. He talks about, I said, I will take heed to my ways, meaning he's going to pay attention to where he's going, that I sin not with my tongue. Well, he's starting to, to, to look at what he says. I will say it, I'll continue to say it, you know, most of the problems when it comes to disagreements and relationship friction and relationship issues, it is communication. If we just, you know, actually followed that verse, let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, it may minister grace unto the hearers. If we actually took that verse to heart, man, we would have such a different, such a different reaction. He says, I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Man, I get, you know, when you see people just flaunting their sin in front of you, it just, it gets to you. It gets to you. And sometimes you want to say something. You have to be careful about that. You have to control it, as he says here, with a bridle. Well, again, we start asking about, well, who's got whose hands are on the bridle? It's God. He should be directing what comes out of your mouth. Not, 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 not ourselves. In verse 2, he says, I was done with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. This is an interesting thing. He actually takes it too far at this point. He withhold good. Now, the Bible says that if you withhold good, it is sin. He specifically points that out. If you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. So it's also a sin of commission and a sin of omission. And here he is, he's holding it in, and then it gets to a point where it just comes out, but but here he is, says it was even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. When he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and he's not saying what he's supposed to say, and he's he's getting to a point of where uh, this conflict rises up, guess what happens? Sorrow begins to, to manifest itself. Why is that? Because he knows he is supposed to do something that is good. There is a time and a place to speak up. And there's also a way to do it. And that's kind of what some of this passage is about. But as we see here, there was a sorrow when something wasn't being done the way it was supposed to be done. 
And as we continue on through this, let's go over to another passage, Psalm chapter 34. (coughs) Psalm chapter 34. And here he is in verse uh, 18. It says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34, 17 makes it very clear how God wants to get close. And what is he talking about? Broken heart and a contrite spirit. Exactly what we were seeing over there in those other passages in Proverbs. This is how we get closer to God. And what does it say there? It says the Lord is nigh unto them. The Lord is nigh unto them. So when Nehemiah is having this moment where he's so heartbroken, it's showing up. And when we see the bad things turn to good over there in Esther, and we find here in these passages where the psalmist is wanting to say something, but sorrow comes in because he's withholding those things that are good, we find all of this being related to this part where he's like, this is meant to draw you near to the Lord. It doesn't say that about laughter. It doesn't say that about laughter. Now it says, Mary Hart doeth good like a medicine. But if you really truly want to get closer to the Lord, there is a better house to be in. And that is in a house of mourning, a house of repentance, a house of one where you begin to realize exactly the sobering nature of what we are doing here in this life and why we're doing it. Again, that doesn't, doesn't mean you walk around with this, you know, distressed face all the time. But what we need to do is we need to be very cognizant of where we need to make the changes in our life so that we are obedient according to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13. That we are fearing God. Take a look at chapter 51. I reference this one as well. Psalm chapter 51, and this is obviously after David sinned with Bathsheba. And we find here in, uh, oh, did I read the wrong way? Hold on a second here. <clears throat> yeah, back over there I read verse 18, not 17. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, here in this passage we're looking at verse 17, which is the parallel. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, wilt thou not despise? So Psalm 51, 17 and Psalm 34, 18, those two passages relate together exactly with what we see over there in the book of Proverbs, talking about the broken spirit that dry, you know, that drives the bones, that has an effect on a person's life, and then also the desire to have that restoration made. Look, when somebody says, hey, you've sinned, we should respond accordingly. We should respond and say, is it really sin? And we look at it from Scripture. Because some people will tell you something's a sin, and it's not really a sin. Somebody will say, you should never wear a red tie in church. That's a sin. (laughs) There are people that say stuff like that. There are people that say, if you don't wear a white shirt when you preach in a dark suit, now I just happened to choose that this morning, uh, just because I happened to grab black socks and I was like, oh, hey, so I guess I'm wearing a black suit. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's how I determine what I'm wearing in the morning is I stumble over and I grab a hold of, you know, whatever socks I'm grabbing. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are people that will say, well, if you're not wearing a, 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 a suit coat when you get up and preach, that you're sinning. Chapter and verse, please. 
what book, and I guarantee you it's not out of the Bible. Look, you, 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 you think that, you know, certain people are, are, are constantly wearing that type of stuff? You think Jesus Christ was wearing a suit and tie? No, he wasn't. That doesn't, that, that doesn't make a person more godly. Okay? It's not about, you know, the, the, the clothes a person wears. What it is about is it's about the intent of the heart. Now, again, you know, we talk about modesty and things of that nature with exceptions. It's what we're supposed to reveal who is in our heart by the way that we dress. We don't want to walk around being, you know, uh, um, uh, um, you know, showy and flashy. And we, we, we went to the mall in between services to go pick something up and, and while we were at the mall, I'm, I'm walking around in my suit. How many times do you see people walking around the mall in a suit? People are like, looking at me. And, and, and again, you know, I'm a little paranoid. I didn't want to carry my, my, uh, um, or leave my Bible bag and with my sermon notes and my Bibles and, you know, things that I need in there. I don't want to leave it in the car in Vancouver, specifically Van Mall. Little wisdom there. So I'm carrying that around. So here I am walking around with this, you know, kind of briefcase type thing and, and, you know, this, this suit walking around and people who are looking at me kind of strange. Well, who's this guy? You know, he, he might be somebody important. No, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just going up there to get some taco time. Just leave me alone. <laughs> you know, it just, it, 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 it we, we, we look at how people view things, and we have to make sure, number one, that we check it out and say, is it really truly sin? We look at it from Scripture. Or is it somebody that made, you know, is man's tradition? And they were jumping up and down all over the disciples. They didn't wash their hands. Jesus is like, you know, that really doesn't matter when you guys are unwashed from your sins. <laughs> yeah, he, I like how, how Christ just brings it right back to the real world, you know. <clears throat> But but what we find here is these passages are meant to do this. They're meant to very clearly change a person's life. They're supposed to respond a certain way. So we, when we get that, we ask, you know, is it sin? And then we ask, okay, how do I make it right? And in that process of making it right, we got to make it right with God first. Because in Psalm 51, he says in verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned, talking to God. But we obviously know there was a few people that were very, very much. Is that me beeping? It is me beeping. Um, <clears throat> that uh, um, they were very much uh, um, being affected by uh, um, uh, th- this sin. Bathsheba, Uriah, for one, the child that died, Ahithophel that took his life eventually, and a whole slew of other people that knew about it. It had an impact in their life. But God makes it clear here that David, the first and foremost thing he wanted to do was get it right with God. Because getting it right with everyone else first is out of out of order. He wanted to make sure he was right with God. Because he can't get right with anyone else if he's not right with God. So we have to get to that point. Um, <clears throat> let's go over and take a look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> here he is, um, and uh, we see the situation that happens. So again, 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies some sin, he rebukes the church at Corinth for the acceptance of the sin, 
and said, you need to get it right up to the point of where you need to remove this guy from your congregation because he's going to, he's going to infect the rest of you. Now, when that happened, the guy repented and he turned the right response, the right way he was supposed to do it. And the end result is what happened is they had a hard time forgiving him. So here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and it says here, so that contrary wise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. He says very clearly in verse 8, wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. You know what what he's saying here? He's saying, look, you, you, you need to forgive as Christ forgave you. You need to go through that process. He says, if you don't do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to force him into a situation where he can't resolve the sorrow that's in his life. You know what happens when you do that? It says there that he's going to be swallowed up. Swallowed up. The guy is done. The guy's done. You know how distressing it is to see something like this? And here he is telling them at this point in time, he says, you know what you need to do? You need to go over there and make sure he knows that you love him. That you don't hate his guts. Now that is an impressive thing to think about considering Paul just told him to throw him out and turn him over to the destruction of Satan. And, you know, all these things. And, and they're ready to do that. And they're ready to get the sin out. And then, then this guy repents. And he said, you need to confirm it. You need to confirm. And this is this is obviously what needs to happen. When a person comes and does these things, we need to make sure that we address the sorrow appropriately. Otherwise, we're going to cause more sorrow. Now, again, this is sorrow under repentance, as he's talking about in this passage, so, or in this book. Go over to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 7. And obviously, you know, Paul had to write some very firm words to the, uh, the church of Corinth. And he says here, talking about this, um, <clears throat> he said... Uh, in verse 8, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceived that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. And it should. There should be a point of where sorrow is for a season. It should come, it should go. Otherwise, if you get swallowed up with it, you start heading into despair real fast. And the bottom of despair is when you start contemplating suicide. It's a, it's a dark place. It's a dark place. And here he is saying, uh, you know, he, he understands that that letter was firm. It, it produced the right result. He wanted them to repent. They did repent. They did repent. The other individual repented. And he says in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Now, isn't that interesting? Joy happens when sorrow occurs first. Just like what we saw over there in Esther chapter 9. That sorrow occurs first, then the joy comes. Why? Because in the process of doing that, they repented. 
they made changes. They, 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 they did things in their life that, that, that actually were now godly instead of looking at them and he, where he has to say, you're all carnal. <laughs> you go over to the first Corinthians chapter, the first three chapters, and he's just like, you know, it's slice and dice. He's, he's just, you know, going after them and he's, he's, he's angry. He's upset. Because they're making a mockery out of what, what, what work God was doing there. They were more concerned about laughter and mirth than they were about being sorry about their sin. But now they're sorry about their sin and he's like, this brings joy. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. You know, again, we have to understand that. There's a right way and a wrong way to produce sorrow. Guilt tripping is not a good way to do that. You address the sin. Passive aggressive is not a good way to do that. Be clear with your words. If there's sin, you address the sin. And here we are in this in this passage, and he's making clear this. He says that you were made after a god, or you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you may not receive damage uh, by us in nothing. Why? Because if you don't do it the right way, you're just going to destroy the person. You're going to mess it up. You're going to cause them harm. And here he says in verse ten, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. And we know that that's obviously what we see here. But the sorrow of death, the world, uh, the sorrow of the world worketh death. He makes it very clear. If you go that direction, this is the end result. You're going to destroy. You're going you're gonna to cause the death of relationships. You're going to cause the death of the relationship with you and God. You're going to cause the death of relationships around you. You're going to cause problems. But when we're pulled away from those things and we begin to see how, how repentance works in our life, these are things that we should be seeking after. Because look at verse 11. Look what happens in verse 11. He says, For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. They started caring about the way that they were doing things. They started caring about how that they were representing Christ. They started caring about others. There was a carefulness. He says, "Yea, he says, yea, what? Uh, um, uh, he says, what sort of carefulness it wrought in you? Yea, what clearing of yourselves? They wanted to make sure that there was nothing between them and anyone else, specifically nothing between them and God. They were cleaning the house. They were cleaning things up. They were clearing it. He says, yea, what indignation." You know what? They got upset at themselves because they were sinning. And they allowed it. And they were, they were indignant about that towards themselves. Not indignant towards God, but towards sin. And he says, yea, what fear? Fear of the Lord, not fear of man. Yea, what vehement desire? It changed what they actually wanted in and it says here, yea, what zeal, it changed what they got excited about. And he says, yea, what revenge. Somebody stops and goes, wait, hold on a second, what? 
They take revenge on somebody? Yeah, they revenge their disobedience, according to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. And you can't revenge your disobedience unless you're obedient first. You can't take care of what you've done unless you follow the will of God first. That's how God wants it. It's turning to him. He says this all comes and happens because sorrow. Now, obviously, when we take a look at this passage and then we go back over there to verse 3, we see where he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, sorrow is better than laughter. Now, if they just laughed it off, would they have had this change in their life? Nope. Nope. They wouldn't have addressed the problem. They wouldn't have gone to the source of the issue. So sorrow is a very powerful thing when God uses it. And when we misuse it, it just messes everything else up. And we take a look here as we go through this and then going back over to, to Ecclesiastes 7, he starts talking about this in verse 4. He says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Let's think about this. You know what mirth is? Mirth is, is kind of, if you will, this kind of forced happiness. It's a party, party, party mentality. It's the, if I occupy myself with entertainment, then I am not going to be sorrowful. I won't have time to be sorry. I won't have time to think about those things. Well, look, mirth is never a solution for sorrow. Mirth is never a solution uh, um, um, to, to, to pursue for anything. We shouldn't be uh, uh, desiring that. So here he is talking about this house, and he's saying the the wise person is going to be in the person is going to be in that house that is willing to always repent and willing to be sorry for what they've done and willing to truly accept the consequences and responsibility of where they are and what they have done. Well, where you go over to the house of mirth and everybody doesn't care. Everybody doesn't care. They're all more about, uh, you know, frivolity. They're all more about, you know, if you will, making noise and things like that. Because as you take a look at verse 4 here, and we, we, you know, you compare this, mourning this expression of grief and sorrow, but it doesn't always relate it to things of death. But here you have mirth as some sort of, sort of social merriment and high excitement of pleasure. And it has a feeling, you know, it has that kind of quote-unquote feelings. But the one thing that it makes a clear, <coughs> sorry, clear difference of the difference between joy and mirth is mirth is always is always compromised of more noise to drown things out, to drown things out. You don't drown things out by noise. You don't drown things out by noise. Um, I. You know, went home and in between services, and uh, Amy was uh, watching some uh, some sermons, and uh, she was actually watching a sermon of an individual that was uh, uh, one of the students over there at PCC in their uh, their pastoral program. 
he was preaching he was preaching a message and it, and it had a very powerful uh, element to it because he talked about how what uh, a person that's an unbeliever what they want to do when they are confronted with their sins is they they go towards the darkness why do they go to the darkness because then they don't have to see they don't think they have to deal with it. but you know what it does it blinds them it blinds them from the consequences. It blinds them from the reality. It blinds them from the fact that they're going to, to, to perish in a devil's hell because of it. But then it comes along the light and it reveals what we need to change and where we are and that we need a savior and we turn to the light. We repent. We, we, we seek him. This is the way that we're supposed to do. We can't just hide these sins. And again, this is what Solomon's talking about. And he's saying, look, you know, here, here are these individuals. They're going to be in this house. It's better to be in that house. It's better to be a wise person that is in that house that is willing to receive that rebuke than to be the fool who just laughs it off and scoffs and scorns. Take a look at verse 5 over here. We'll be done with this in just a minute. And verse 5, it says here very clearly, and here's, here's the pivotal verse of what we're talking about in these, this passage. It is better to hear rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Which would you rather listen to? Just quick poll. Everybody has to participate. There, you, sorry, there's not a lot of you here. You get to participate. So here's how it works. I'm going to ask you a question. Which do you prefer? Would you rather sit and listen to a lecture all day long? Or would you rather sit there and listen to the music that you like? Who wants to hear a lecture? Oh, praise God, there's somebody like me. <laughs> Who wants to listen to the music? You guys didn't participate. <laughs> you, you, you see what happens? We're more wanting to listen to a song than listen to a rebuke. Why? Because the song can make us feel good. The song can change our attitude. You know, I mean, think about it for a second. Here you are, you're driving down the road, and you're just like, because they're driving like crazy people out here. Man, it's getting nuts. I'm actually thinking about, you know, upgrading the armament on my car or something like that. You know, I'm just like, this is getting insane. I want missile launchers now. This is getting nuts. But they're all out there and they're driving around and you're just like, eh. But then a song comes on that changes your attitude. Isn't that weird how that happens? That's the power of music. Trust me, the devil knows how to use it. You listen to the wrong music. And it'll change you into thinking weird and strange and dark and sinful thoughts. You listen, I mean, just as an example, you listen to certain music and all it talks about is shooting cops and killing people and, and doing horrible, wicked things. Guess what your mind is going to be focused on? That. That. You, you, you listen to one where all day long, you know, it's sitting there talking about uh, um, you know, even evil, wicked things. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have those thought processes. You listen to, oh man, when I was in, oh, I'll close with this. When I was in college, I had I, I had a drawing class. 
And we were drawing still lifes. And this guy, he, did, he, he set himself up as the DJ. And here he is, and he's, he, he, he's the class DJ, and he brings in his boom box that tells you how old it was. But thankfully, he had CDs. But it still had a dual cassette. So, that, again, dates myself. Uh, <clears throat> here he is, and he starts playing music. You know, I think I pretty much could probably sing by heart every song of The Doors. You're like, who is that? If you don't know who that is, praise God, all right? <clears throat> I do! You know, I could sing probably by heart every ACDC song. I immediately recognize it. Why? Because I, I was subjected to listen to that. And at some point in time, I said, dude, like classical music or something, man. You know, here I am trying to, trying to draw a pair and I have to listen to Highway to Hell. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm going to draw that pair on fire is what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, this is not peaceful. Finally, the instructor did say something and he said, your choice of music is not quite exactly what the class wants. So he, he you know, resorted to some more quote unquote peaceful stuff. And, and you know, I was sitting there listening to the Beatles and Paul McCartney and I'm this isn't even better. It's <laughs> like, come on. I'm a classical music kind of guy. You may not like it. That's fine. I find some beauty in it. Tell you, there's a lot of classical music that hymns are based on. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, I wanted that. I even wanted just some peaceful, like, you know, uh, I, I like listening to, to, to just like peaceful heart music and, yeah, and, and I know bagpipes. That's not peaceful though. <laughs> just once you get, you get you into the mood for battle is what that does. Do you see how it affects you? Music is an important thing. It'll affect your thought processes. It'll affect your thought processes. So when he's saying here, you gotta be careful what you listen to. You gotta be careful if you're listening to a rebuke or you're listening to a song. Because the rebuke will come from a wise man, but that song that quite, you know, quote unquote, changes you, gives you a good feeling, is a song of fools. It distracts you from the issue. It distracts you from God. And we'll talk more about that as he kind of goes into this in more detail next week. But let's just be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again, Lord, that we could come here and just hear from your word. Thank you again for um, what you teach us, Lord, about changes we need to make in our life, about uh, how the importance of sorrow is is key to those changes that we need to make, uh, how repentance is tied to it, Lord, um, the 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 desire to do your will comes in into our life, Lord, when we choose to forsake those things of sin and forsake those things of death and destruction. Pray, Lord, you just take us home safely tonight, and Lord, we meditate on all the things we've learned this day. Lord, may we be a witness of you throughout this week. May we glorify you with our deeds, our actions, our thoughts, our words. Lord, and may you use us to be a witness and a testimony to those that are lost and to edify other believers. These things I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.